This is the UFC on Fox 26 or UFC Winnipeg post-fight special. My name is Luke Thomas. Of course, I am the host of the Luke Thomas Show on Sirius XM Rush Channel 93. I am also the host of a number of different podcasts, the Monday Morning Analyst, the Promotional More Practice Live Chat on MMAfighting.com. I am a panelist on the MMA Beat you probably know me from a lot of places. Thank you so much for joining me. I am very delighted to be here. We're going to go for about mm, 40 minutes or so tonight uh, discussing the card that just ended, UFC on Fox 26, UFC Winnipeg. So if you're watching this live, I can't believe I have to give these disclaimers out, but I don't want to be like Colby Covington with Star Wars. So if you don't want any spoilers, you got to get out of here, right? I'm about to do nothing but give spoilers away. So five, four, three, two one okay i'm assuming if you're still around you don't mind a spoiler or seventy-five thousand. here we go by the way this program is brought to you by the beta academy i'll put a link in the description box below the beta academy is at the corner of 14th street and florida avenue northwest in washington dc this is where i'm a member if you ever want to train when you're in the nation's capital it's a great place to go go check them out in addition in addition Please give this video a like and subscribe to the channel below. It's a big help for me when you do something like that. Okay, you might be saying, Luke, you're nearly 40 years old. Why are you wearing this hat um, like a jackass? It's just because I feel like wearing a hat today. I, I don't pretend that it's anything other than a thing that covers my head. So just let me have my hat. Just let me have my hat. All right? All right. Thank you guys so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Let's start at the top of the card and then work our way down if we can. Okay, here we go. In the main event, by the way, let me just say something before we even get to these results. This event ending at like 10, 20 or so, uh, and that was a five-round main event, is just the most glorious thing in the world. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate an MMA event. It's only four fights on the main card. You get some wins. You get some uh, losses. You get some fights that are knockouts. You get some fights that are short and quick. You get the whole nine, and really, you're out of there by 1030. If you're on the East Coast, you can still go to the bars. As soon as I'm done with this, I'm going to walk to my local watering hole with my wife and go have a drink. It is really just a wonderful, wonderful thing. So I cannot tell you how much I love these Fox shows. Um, the Winnipeg crowd was fine. I guess they showed up. I don't know that it was quite a sellout, but it appeared to be well attended. The wooing, which in fairness is not exclusive to Winnipeg, is probably the most annoying thing in the world uh, and evidence of the fact that human civilization, if it's not coming to an end, certainly deserves to. Now, let's get to the results. Uh, Rafael Dos Anjos defeating Robbie Lawler, 50-45. Wow. I have to be honest. I know some folks were, you know, they've been all aboard the 170 hype train for Rafael Dos Anjos, and for sure, his two fights after 2016 at 170 uh, gave you plenty of reason to suspect he could do well beating Tarek Safadine or Tarek Safadine back in June via unanimous decision and then running over Neil Magny. And then he takes on Robbie Lawler and absolutely, you know, I don't know if handles is quite the right word, but wins cleanly. No controversy about that at all. I will be honest with you. Um, there are times when I look around and I say a guy changes weight class and you can just tell that this is going to go well for him. And it's not that I thought that RDA would do poorly at welterweight. Certainly not. Um, I thought he would do well. I didn't know he would do this well right out of the gate. I mean, he is on fire coming out of there. And that isn't to say that he's better than the guys he lost to at lightweight. Were it not for the weight cut, he would easily defeat them. That's not necessarily true, but it is, I think, fair to suggest that that weight cut was 
clearly inf- influential in the outcomes of those contests that he was in. They, it, it absolutely played a role. And for him to have this kind of a running start at a welterweight here in 2017, I wouldn't call him fighter of the year, but I certainly would put him on the list for honorable mention to lose two in 26. So 2015, here was his 2015. He beat Anthony Pettis, right? And then he beats Donald Cerrone. He, he absolutely ran over Anthony Pettis and he stopped Cerrone in one round. All right. Then 2016, he loses to Eddie Alvarez, loses his title. Then he fights Tony Ferguson in the sky in Mexico City. And that was a competitive contest, but he ultimately was just sort of overwhelmed there. Uh, and then he goes and jumps up to 170 and beats Torek Safadine, Neil Magny, and Robbie Lawler, guys who were considered to be, um, first of all, former champions in two of those cases. And another one, a, a guy who uh, was considered to be, you know, very tough test for anybody in that division for him to get this kind of success. I'll just be honest. I did not see this coming. Um, impressive is an understatement to be honest, truly, truly impressive. So in my judgment, I, I would say, let's see what happens with Cynthia Calvijo at UFC 219. If she defeats Carla Esparza, that'll be four fights in one year, just inside the UFC five, I believe if you count the regional scene and then she'd have ended the year, beating the former champion starting unranked. That's not quite Cody Garbrandt 2016, but that's pretty good. My only point is RDA has had a tremendous 2017 and really, really deserves a pat on the back for that. Unbelievable work that he's done. He's really done it a lot of different ways. You know, Torek Safadine is good everywhere. Neil Magny has some... I think Neil Magny doesn't manage his frame all that well against guys who are really skilled, right? He doesn't stay tight and compact. He gets extended, and as a consequence, that's where problems happen. And extended doesn't mean just this way. It can mean that way, too. But it, it just means that elbows aren't on ribs. Knees aren't against elbows. He doesn't stay compact on the ground. That can be a bit of a problem for him. He can be under, overwhelmed with underhooks and sort of a, a more physical guys. And that really is what is really impressing me about this Robbie Lawler fight. There was a moment there where they were kind of exchanging in the pocket. And by the pocket, I mean like boxing range. And they did very little of that ultimately as the fight wore on. But there, there was a little bit of that happening. And I thought to myself, well, I think RDA knows this is fairly even here. And he probably can't win. You know, Lawler is just so good when the left was coming over from Dos Anjos. He just has a nice way of turning and rolling with it. And it lands. It like bounces off the shoulder or 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 he gets inside of it and it hits on the inside of the arm. He's just really good about not getting out of the way, but putting himself in a position where he's not tremendously absorbing it. And I thought, well, that, you know, I think RDA realizes he can't win if this is where the fight is going to be. So what does he do? He does everything but that. Uh, at first, he's doing a lot of backing up. I think he was very... Um, cognizant what Robbie Lawler is capable of doing as a forward moving offensive talent but he was chipping away with the leg kicks inside the clinch he was never letting himself getting overwhelmed man you want to talk about exhausting try and fight for an underhook for 25 minutes good lord that is exhausting he he didn't always necessarily have two underhooks a lot of times he just had one and it would switch sides where him and Lawler were really fighting for inside control but he did a really good job of, of always making sure he had one underhook to work with and he always wanted to have the underhook and then with the hand behind the back of the head so he could turn and pull Lawler shut that down a lot early but nevertheless you just saw RDA really in the trenches there never getting overwhelmed always staying calm finding an elbow or a knee to slide up in there you know really doing a good work keeping Lawler on his toes staying busy staying active in the end like just ask yourself who did more 
from an overall total perspective of effort, who did more? Now, you could also say that Lawler did a little bit less, especially in that fifth round, because he was so physically hobbled by the attacks. Fair point. No argument. But nevertheless, take the fifth round out of it. Who did more? Well, RDA just did more. And he, he was just always applying offensive pressure when he could. He was always absorbing offensive pressure when he needed to. Um, and in the clinch, he was always always making sure that the fight never got away from him, making sure I had an underhook at least on one side, at least on one side. Remember that inside control, that's really where the fight takes place. If someone has double underhooks on you like that, you're going to be in big trouble. But if you've got one, unless you're fighting Cain Velasquez at heavyweight or something, you can do a lot with that. You can really do a lot with that. One underhook is is oftentimes the difference between a win and a loss. And I think RDA knows that. He's talented in so many dimensions. And another thing I really liked from him, in addition to merely that, was, you know, I told you before, he would try and get the one underhook and then the hand behind the head to pull him off to the side, and then you get your back out and you escape. That wasn't really available, especially, I think, in the second and third rounds when they were locked up like that. So what did he do? He would find a way to catch a knee, um, and then try and drive a takedown, which would he wouldn't necessarily get it every time, but he would force it, have Lola defend it. But at that point, you've already rushed him off the fence to create space. I mean, it's just really smart stuff, really smart stuff. He has come such a long way from the guy that Jeremy Stevens sent his boogers flying into orbit in his UFC debut to to handling Robbie Lawler in 2017. It is it is it is fundamentally remarkable what he's been capable of. Now, if you're one of these guys who thought he would go well to 170, good on you. You know, again, I didn't think he'd do poorly by any stretch of the imagination, but did I, did I think he would, like, run the table on Robbie Lawler? I I did not think he would be able to do that. Win, sure. Run the table, I don't know. Also, it should be noted that the odds makers were pretty right about this. The odds makers had this as more or less a pick Um, And, yes, Lawler lost all five rounds, so in that sense, no. But, you never were sure, even heading into that fifth round, if Lawler was just one big bomb away from landing. It wasn't like there was this slow creep where you're like, get the towel ready. We got we got to save Robbie here. It wasn't that either. Robbie has just what I, I mean, what can only be described as otherworldly resilience. I've never seen a fighter, I don't think, like that ever. He is a god of war. That is what he is. It is tremendous to watch somebody like that. He defines, and I should say, really, he redefines, if we're being honest, what it means to be able to do two things, I think, fundamentally. One, in the presence of a firefight, as I mentioned before, yes, he can take a shot, but also he kind of just rolls and absorbs and takes it and stays calm. He doesn't panic. It's incredible. And then it's just a genetic gift. I mean, I don't know how you can have the wars he had. I mean, just look at the career of Robbie Lawler and think about all he's been through and that, yes, he got overwhelmed tonight, but Jesus Christ, I thought the bottom was going to drop out after the Condit win. The Condit win will be two years ago next month, and he's out here still doing this. Are you shitting me? This is incredible. This is totally incredible. Look. Here's his wins in the UFC. Okay, so he loses to Lorenz Larkin in Strikeforce, which is amazing at Lorenz Larkin. I think um, Derek Brunson had a tweet about that. Like, Lorenz Larkin has beaten, like, Masvidal. No, wait, did he, no, he lost to Masvidal. But he beat – I'll get to that later. Point being is he beats Koscheck, Volker, and McDonald, right? And the McDonald one was just, you know, you know what it was. Loses to Hendricks in a five-round contest. Beats Jake Allenberger in a three-round contest. Beats Matt Brown, five-round contest. Jenny, Johnny Hendricks, again, split decision, five-round contest. 
Rory McDonald beats him in a five-round contest, although it ended before the bell. Uh, Carlos Condit, split decision, five-round contest. Loses to Tyrone Woodley, comes back and beats Donald Cerrone, and beats Rafael Dos Anjos. It is absolutely clear that since the Carlos Condit win, he has lost two of his last three. Not the same guy. How could you expect it? But that he is even this competitive after that is insane. It is insane for him to be able to do that. Um, I I really he might be the most durable fighter of all time. That's a different thing than having like I can just bite down on the mouthpiece and take a shot. Maybe he doesn't have the best chin in that sense, although he doesn't have a bad chin at all. But it's just to be able to just sit there and be run through the dryer and all the clothes are tumbling and he just comes out looking like he went you know fully pressed. It's it's. It's shocking. It's shocking. And it's not doing it at a weight class at like 125 either, where it's just sort of like grind on your joints and back because of sort of accumulated wear and tear. We're talking about 170 where these guys walk around, you know, off season 220, you know, or 210 at a bare minimum. Um, I think one of the things that has aided, by the way, RDA's move up to 170 is that, and they were talking about on the broadcast a little bit, although earlier in the broadcast, it just feels like, the guys at 155 are getting so goddamn big that it's less of a transition back to 170 than than um, I don't know 170 to 185 feels like a big pretty big jump. Like look look at guys like Johnny Hendricks and Kelvin Gastelum. They move up there and you're like, okay, some of these guys are pretty competitive, but that's a huge leap. And they're and you just always feel like, all right, you're good. You're obviously talented, especially in the case of Kelvin Gastelum, less so in Johnny Hendricks's case, but um, Certainly, case of Gaslam, you're like, you know, you're obviously talented, but, you know, I don't know. This is optimal, right? Um, hard to make that argument from 155 to 170 for some of these guys. Hard to make that argument, really, truly. That is an amazing ability to adjust like that. But if it's not that much of a leap, maybe we shouldn't be as surprised as I think we should. A um, couple of things of note. I didn't like the last stand-up from Herb Dean when RDA was on top. I'm amazed that RDA was able to, even able to get takedowns, you know, Robbie Lawler back, you know, back in the back in that Ellenberger to Condit run, right? Ellenberger, Brown, Hendricks, McDonald, Condit, that five fight run there. Back in the back in that day, his takedown defense was like completely lights out. Um, it's not quite what it once was, especially if you're hobbled and injured, and he may have had an injured hand as well. Um, I, um, I have to say, um, I thought that RDA getting the takedown was. Pretty remarkable. His timing on this, his timing on the doubles is great. And what's amazing about RDA and another reason why he's able to translate up from 155 to 170 so well is that um, he's so physical. He's a physical fighter, right? Like if you want to duke it out, he'll duke it out with you for just a little bit, right? Let you know what time it is that he's able to match your in. Like it's like wrestling. Like if someone is wrestling you at a certain intensity, there are certain cases where you want to have a bull matador kind of dynamic but there's a lot of cases where if someone's that intense you want to match that intensity you don't ever want to lose a match because you're evenly skilled or relatively evenly skilled or you might be more skilled but they're competing with such intensity that it just overwhelms you you don't want to do that rda as i mentioned before he stayed calm when he was you know fighting for underhooks doing bicep control head control turning you know firing a knee up the middle um but he did a really good job of just matching uh, uh, or i should say um making sure that Robbie Lawler knew he wasn't the more intense one in this contest because he wasn't. Now, we talked about Robbie Lawler's incredible uh, ability to endure. What about 
RDA's 23-second onslaught. What was it, the end of round two or three? Can't remember the uh, precise round that this happened at. That was one of the more incredible things. I love guys who are able to go to the body. That switch kick was not really available for him because I think they they both had, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they both had opposite stances, two southpaws like that. So what RDA does is against law against uh, excuse me against um, Cowboy Cerrone when the stances are opposite, he likes to take the back leg and then drive it up the gut to a lot of guys, which is very a common weapon for him. That was taken away, so he did it with the lead leg this time, and it scored. And I actually think it did a lot of damage. You go back and watch the third round when they're marching around the cage. You see Lawler taking that elbow. He had it nice and low. His 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 head was wide open. Now he's so good with his footwork and distance management and um, attack timing that he never really put himself in a position to get hit by it too often or to make an adjustment back up and then not be there for the counter. Right, so he was good about not making a bad situation worse, but I do think it had a tremendous impact. And when he went and unloaded on him like that, in that again, I can't remember if it was the second or third round at this point, but it went for twenty three seconds. Dude, he was firing rib roasters, uppercuts, shots over the top. It was a it was a onslaught of attack. And again, this is the, that to me was like. I could not believe that Robbie Lawler, after after beating Carlos Condit, he lose, loses to Woodley, and I thought, man, that's it. And then he goes in and he beats Don Cerrone, and I was like, how is that even possible? That 23 seconds should tell you how that's possible. That 23 seconds is everything. It is that he's a guy who can take a shot, who can block a lot of shot, who can stay calm to not let things go from terrible to even more terrible, because it was terrible, but it never really, it just stayed at a, at a high hum. It didn't. It didn't escalate enough, uh, and then to just sort of smile and then and then regroup a little bit. That that twenty three seconds was just entirely emblematic of that of every, you know every fight he's had basically since twenty fourteen is really what that is. So so what's next for RDA is one of the predominant question here. Um, so let's look at those rankings. You know you've got Colby Cut. You got let's see you've got if I'm not mistaken, obviously we'll lose your champ. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you have Wonder Boy at one. I'm not sure who's at two. But I know Covington is at three. Let's see here. Where are the rankings putting us? Yeah, Lawler's at two. Man, so that puts him right behind Wonderboy Thompson if they're going to change places like that. Now, Dos Anjos was at four before that. So is he going to leapfrog Colby? Probably. Uh, whether or not he should, he will. I'm not saying he shouldn't. I'm just introducing that as a caveat. Um, and of course, Wonder Boy, you know, has got the two the two wins, excuse me, the two losses already against Woodley. As long as Woodley's the champ, I just don't I don't see that as likely. So, like, is Dos Anjos next? Are they gonna do the ultimate fighter with Covington and Woodley? And I don't know what they're gonna do. Um, but if Dos Anjos, I mean, that's about as close to a title shot as you're gonna get, uh, without sort of making it official, right? You beat the former champ, you are the former champ in a different weight class. You're 3-0. and You just beat him soundly. And the guy in front of you already lost twice. We'll see what they do. We'll see what they do. It's going to be very, very interesting to see. Colby Covington is probably going to have a few words to say about it. Covington versus Dos Anjos would be very, very interesting because you'll recall Habib had his way with RDA. Now, that was a while ago. I'm not saying he would do that the same. But Covington, I think people really dislike him, obviously. Um, and I don't know that he would beat RDA. I mean, that's a really RDA at this point is a handful. Um, but as good as he is on the ground, 
you know, that Magni win, notwithstanding, the only two other submissions he had on the ground were Shalarus, who he rocked and then just took his back, and then Terry Adam, who he just sort of overwhelmed, but it took him a while. In other words, I think Covington, if he really stuck to his wrestling, it's not abundantly clear to me that it would not why wouldn't that be successful? We've seen a guy with a similar sort of – Habib's got a lot of different ways he can go, but he has also – he can do a sort of a folk-style wrestling approach if he needs to. Covington can do that as well. So it would be interesting to see if they have to match them up to, for, for, you know, um, to establish number one contender, essentially what they want to do. But, man, incredible. Incredible win by Dos Anjos, really. I am uh, speechless no, but hugely impressed, yes. Makes you wonder, some of these other guys who are just dying to make 155, if Dos Anjos can come up there and just do this to these guys, who are the other 155ers who could come up and maybe have some success as well? Something to think about. And, you know, further evidence that I'm not one of these guys who's like, weight cutting makes no sense. Mm, it makes some sense, depending on who you are. But pretty clearly, there's going to be diminishing returns if you're out there, you know, passing out in saunas. Uh, if you're that guy, then it's something to reconsider and the success that he has had at uh, 170 pounds now is a fairly strong argument that if you're at that level of sacrifice to make a weight class, you might be better off just moving up. Uh, okay, so do me a favor. Let me go. Uh, <laughs> hilarious. Uh What? He's been tested 10 times this year, and it's possible that the tester showed up early in the morning, late at night, or while he's had company over, so he very well will have suffered from their entry into the sport, as was speculated. Oh, I see what you mean. Uh, yeah, he's been tested 10 times this year. You know, that when, RDA was one of these guys who everyone was like, oh, when USADA gets into the sport, he's going to be shown to be one of these guys who's going to like fall off a cliff like Eric Silva. That did not happen, did it? That did not happen. Uh, okay, give the video a like. Subscribe below. I really appreciate that when you do. Let's look at some of the other results on this card. If we can, please, that would be kind of great. How about that co-main event? Josh Emmett defeating Ricardo Lamas at 433 of the first round. Same thing. Guys miss going this way, and as they torque their body back, they bring you know hell and heaven with him at the same time and he absolutely crushed ricardo lamas ricardo lamas has lost to chad mendez he lost to danny castillo at 155 i believe in the wec and now josh emmett boy team alpha male has his number i don't know why but they seem to and you have got to feel bad for ricardo lamas what a terrible terrible loss for him not every loss is the same in the ufc remember jose aldo was supposed to be on this card by the way here is my I found this in my bag the other day. Can you guys see this? It's my Mayweather Pacquiao media uh, USB. It's got like all their weight classes and all their, the fight card. Can you all see that right there? Kind of cool. Anyway, um, he was supposed to fight Jose Aldo on this card. And that would have been a Jose Aldo who, obviously, if he was on this card, he wouldn't have lost to Max Holloway more recently. If he loses like that, you can say, hey, Aldo's back. You know, well, good for Aldo. You know, and Max Holloway, or excuse me, uh, Ricardo Lamas, you know, he just can't be Jose Aldo. Big deal. Not that it's a good thing that he would have lost, but it wouldn't have been terrible. This is a terrible loss. 
supposed to fight Jose Aldo, loses that, is not immediately replaced. There are several weeks that pass where he does not know who he's going to fight. They bring in Josh Emmett, and Josh Emmett just absolutely put it on his chin. He called it a check hook. Now, I'm not here to say he's wrong. He knows better than me. But I always understood a check hook to be something where like, you have a lunging fighter or a pressure fighter. You just kind of check them as they come in either side just to sort of keep them honest. This was sort of like a cross and then come back around to finish the combo. But either way, absolutely lethal with that left hand. And I have to say, I really liked Josh Emmett's approach to this contest. He missed weight at 148 and a half. If you're going to miss weight because you can't make it because you're trying to make it on short notice, right? You, you had a terrible cut, probably. Um, why pretend you can fight hard in the third round? Get out there and put it on him in the first and the second. You're not going to be able to fight hard in the third round anyway. Give her, you know, Sting the guy while you have the ability to sting. Do that shit. And he did that. That's exactly what he did. Um, really, really smart stuff. He did a lot of things that I didn't think Ricardo was biting on. He would do the, these stutter steps, then change uh, stances, and then try and land the left. He would change it to a southpaw stance, and then try and land the left. That didn't ever really work. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> but he could put him in close quarters, and if he can get him to exchange in the pocket, boom. Came over the top of that left, absolutely put him out. Had had Ricardo Lama stiff with that one. Now, there's a debate about um, you know missing weight and celebrating. I, I really have no issue with it. Ricardo Lamas, well, he was put in a very terrible position. He did accept the contest. You'll note Tim Elliott did not. Um, he accepted the contest, which means you accept the risks and you accept the consequences. He gets 30% of Emmett's purse, and Emmett is not eligible for a bonus. So um, I don't I don't know what the problem is here. If both guys agree to it under the conditions that they are and the guy who didn't do what he was supposed to do is penalized and the other guy is okay with that penalization such that he is allowing the bout to go forward, he has every right to celebrate that contest. I understand that rubs some people the wrong way where you're missing weight. He apologized for missing weight. He tried to take this fight on short notice. I really have very little issue with it. It's not okay that he missed weight. This is, the, the fine was good, not really the fine – you know, a lot of times the fine would go back to the commission and went to Ricardo. So I'm okay with it. Now, if he misses weight again, then we have a problem on our hands. But uh, for now, I'm really okay with it. And now you've got this other guy at, um, well, I guess Featherweight, who, you know, I think Josh Emmett's a little bit older. They kept calling him a kid. He's in his 30s. But, you know, he's sort of new to the top of the division kind of thing. And this is not the same argument I can make about, you know, the Megamed Sharapovs or the Air Rodriguez's or the Max Holloway's or the Brian Ortega's. These guys in their 20s taking over at Featherweight, shoving out all the old, old talent. In that sense, Emmett would qualify. But I think if you're looking at sort of newer faces and promotional opportunities, Emmett does kind of provide you that. By the way, Emmett, a long time ago, was on Mark Bell's PowerCast, I think during the days when Silent Mike was on there. So shouts to those guys. And if you haven't seen that, go check that out. Emmett has a really interesting story. You know, as a collegiate wrestler, he talks about some of his training methods on there. It's a good podcast. So check out Mark Bell's podcast. It's most it's it's annoyingly homoerotic, the podcast. But uh, Emmett had a great interview there. As for Ricardo, man, that is a oh, – you got to feel for him. That is a tough loss, number three in the world. Um I don't know how far he is into his contract, but I know he was looking to make a statement with this one. He's 35 years old. Um, he had two wins coming in this one. He had beaten Charles Oliveira, finished him. Remember, he had that great win at 214 over Jason Knight, and Jason Knight didn't look right in his last fight either. Like, Ricardo Lamas put it on him, and he got crushed. He got crushed by Josh Emmett in this one. So, going to be hard to see how he rebounds from this one, but um, I guess we'll see how that goes. How about a welterweight Santiago Ponzinibbio defeating Mike Perry? 29-28. This was not just a great – this was great matchmaking because it wasn't just a great contrast of 
personalities, but it was a great contrast of styles as well. Ponzinibbio, very slow to open, took him time to, to make adjustments midway, and then by the end of it, was really able to get it. How did he do it? A few ways, one by luck, you know, just spinning into that thing that he did. The uh, I think it was a spinning back fist, not spinning back elbow. Um, sort of dumb luck, but look, if you throw it and it lands, then you get to reap the rewards. But more than that, I think he patiently wanted to sort of see what Perry was showing him early and 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 didn't attack and uh, as very as often. But when he got going, he was really able to sit behind the jab. His movement laterally, side to side, I think really gave Perry a lot of problems. If you can back up and you can move a lot, Perry has a hard time really finding a juncture to let go. Early on, he was able to charge right in and get in Ponzinibbio's face. And I think Ponzinibbio felt his power early and was a little bit rattled by it. But when he got settled down and was able to really more carefully monitor his movement and more accurately anticipate what kind of attacks that were going to come his way from Perry, you really saw him begin to open up at that point. And I thought he really did a good job with the jab. I thought he did a really good job, especially in the third round, um, with the takedown and holding him. And if he wasn't doing a ton of damage, he was still making Perry work. And you saw Perry was really wobbled partly from shots he was taking because he got dropped, but also partly from fatigue as well. And all that was really great too. Um, I think Perry is unfairly maligned. A lot of people want to call him a donk because, you know, he's a blue collar, sort of a tough guy. And a lot of guys who look and talk like Mike Perry aren't very talented. I saw some people calling him Phil Baroni 2.0, and I thought Phil had a good career too. But I'm not really sure how fair that is because I think Mike Perry is learning a lot very, very quickly. He does show a susceptibility to outside movement. He does not necessarily get very offensively active when he's the one taking center against a guy who is really on his on his bicycle. But um, I think he's learning a lot. It's just that Ponzinibbio was just kind of a step ahead every time he basically needed to be from that middle round on, halfway through the middle round and on. Like, the first seven minutes was kind of Mike Perry's world, more or less. That's debatable, but more or less. But after that, it was all Ponzinibbio, or at least it was enough Ponzinibbio um, to make the difference. By the way, speaking three languages, English, Spanish, and Portuguese, in the post-fight uh, interview that he did with John Annex, that was kind of impressive as well. Um, but I still think that Mike Perry has a decent future. It was those leg kicks, too, from Ponzinibbio that did a really great job, really hurting, forcing a lot of... I, th I think that Perry can stance switch i just don't know that it really comes natural to him or that he prefers it so i think that's a bit of a problem but um but uh it's just that ponzinibbio just seems a little bit more polished a little bit more polished it was he could he can just do a few more things he can mix in parts of his game better he doesn't quite hit as hard but he can find more openings through this smaller accumulation of these jabbing, um, these knifing jabs that he has, right? And then he can sort of pour on other ways, either with the leg kicks or he can go to the body as well or the spinning back fist or the takedowns. You can just sort of see from there. Um, where this puts him, hard to say. Perry, I don't think it hurts his stock too badly, although a win is never great. But Ponzinibbio, I think, you know, versus Darren Till, would be and if they can do that in London. I mean, maybe it's a bit too early, but um, we'll see. Oh, that's the March show. They could probably let's see. So end of December, January, February, eh, maybe they could do it. Um, but if they could get that fight going, that would be unbelievable. I, you know, it kind of kills what was going to be Perry versus Till, which I think would have been a lot more fun. But um, hey, you know, the better guy deserves to take the better opportunity. And tonight that was Santiago Ponzinibbio. So um, 
great a great contrast of styles because it really showed that how do I say this exactly? Um, Perry proved to be talented. Ponzinibbio proved to be better. But each guy had a unique strength that uniquely touched on the other guy's weakness. I think the power of Perry, some of the pressure, again, that was not altogether true, and some of the resiliency of Perry and the willingness to brawl or to find a way to make the fight a brawl really hurt Ponzinibbio. Conversely, Ponzinibbio's movement, smarts, patience, more well-rounded ability, and jab, you know, they gave Perry some unique troubles. And that that was a nice little mix. So you had this two different kinds of people, two different kinds of attitude, although they look pretty similar. And it wasn't just this contrast of their personalities, which often drives a lot of fight dynamics. You know, oh, these guys are totally different people. Okay, well, how are they as fighters? But they were different as fighters too. And I think you saw that tonight. Uh, we keep this going. Glover to share defeating Misha Serkinov. Man, what do you say about this one? This was crazy. This was crazy. Misha Serkinov was piecing up Glover to share. And but this one only went to, to this one went, uh, let's see, fifth, two minutes and 15, excuse me, three minutes. No, two minutes and 15 seconds into the first round, ended at 245 of, of round number one. You had. Misha Serkinov absolutely piecing him up like it was nobody's business. Glover Teixeira hurt, backing up against the fence, hands up, covering. Serkinov, it looked to me like what Serkinov was doing in Bri to Brian Ortega in round two of their contest. And then he, oh, God, man, Glover Teixeira is so good. He's so good. Did you guys see how he got that takedown? Daniel Cormier talked about it, but he didn't touch on it enough. We have talked about it on the Monday Morning Analyst ad nauseum. I'm going to say it one time. I'm going to say it a thousand times because it is so important. A lot of times in martial arts, mixed martial arts, whatever, directionality has to be side to side constantly to get an attack. You want a guard pass, you have to threaten to the left. If you want to go to the right, to go back to the left, to go back to the right. You have to go side to side. Toriando passes are just like that. Leg drag passes sometimes in terms of setting up the entry into the leg drag can be that way. I've talked about it before. If someone's on top of you and mount, this is a special note to the big boys out there. If you're over 200 pounds, if you just buck and roll to one side, that is not enough. You have to buck and roll side to side, side to side. When you finish a combo, if you don't land with the left or the right, you come back with the left. How many times have you seen this? It is side to side, side to side, side to side. That pressure this way it can be so utterly confusing and just frankly hard to manage even if somebody can anticipate the attack. That's true in grappling. That's true in striking. And that is true in wrestling. Glover Teixeira showing that here expertly. How did he do it? I can't remember if he went left, right, or right, left. But either way, he whips to the side to get a takedown from a body lock. Tries to get his leg behind the other leg of Serkinov so he can take him over that blocked leg. Oops, hang on. Uh, so what happens? It blocks it. So what does is, what is, uh, Teixeira do? He goes the other way. And gets that, and then takes him down. It's it's, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant from from Glover Teixeira. Man, he had a rough run there, beating Jared Cannonier, of course, losing. Let's go through his record here, um, very very quickly. Thirty eight years old. You know, he's as old as me. God damn, he is old. Uh, you know, he he loses horribly to Anthony Johnson, beats Jared Cannonier, who was sort of undersized in my judgment. Then loses to Alexander Gustafson and comes back and beats Misha Serkinov. Misha Serkinov had four wins to start his UFC campaign, all four by stoppage, including breaking a guy's jaw. He loses to Uzdemir quickly and loses to now uh, Teixeira very, very quickly as well. 
that it, it, I, it, Glover Teixeira, he missed his prime outside the UFC, but he has made up for it in spades coming back like this, getting a nice win. Uh, you saw from the wizard. What, what is a wizard? A wizard is an overhook of an underhook. If someone has an underhook on you, you overhook the underhook. That's what a wizard is, right? People often have a hard time explaining it. I don't know why. It's just an overhook of an underhook. Uh, he overhooks it, but he can't, it, and it temporarily stops Teixeira, but Teixeira is leaning into him, and now where's Serkinov? He's on his knees. So what happens? Serkinov knows he's beat. He lets go of the underhook, and there you go. Whoop, Serkinov, uh, excuse me, Teixeira gets right around him, takes his back, snatches him off of his base, rolls onto Mount while holding him there. And when, by the way, if someone is if someone is at this kind of an angle and someone's underneath them and they're driving down, they're pressing their hips into them to stretch them out. You saw Serkinov like this, feet dangling like this behind him. Ah, couldn't do couldn't do anything. And I think he may have even tapped the strikes as you know he had one hand down. I think his right hand down, and Teixeira just lit him on fire with the left. Man, Glover Teixeira is a bad motherfucker, man. He's a super tough guy. We have all, and me included, I'm sure you have as well, left him for dead. I thought Serkinov, and I thought he was doing it early. Serkinov was piecing him up, but Serkinov doesn't have a bad ground game. He broke Alex Nicholson's jaw with his power from a choke, and here he is just getting run over. I don't know if he's got a thing where early in fights he makes bad decisions, or, you know, and I'm sure this is partly true that we left Glover to share for dead. What a win by Glover. Calling out now um, Cormier, you know, one win in a row is not great, although winning against Serkinov is obviously pretty uh, impressive. But Serkinov might have some kind of performance anxiety issue, or it may take him a second to get going. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Or these other guys are just that good. It could be that he, we, we, we've overrated him. Um, hard to say. Hard to say, but pff, ridiculous, man. Ridiculous to have that kind of composure under fire like that, and then to go one way, and then to go the other, take him down put pressure into his wizard to make him let go of the wizard, take his back, snatch him off of his base, roll him out, and then as he turns, pound him out again. Pretty brilliant. Pretty brilliant by him. So that is your main card for UFC on Fox 26 or UFC Winnipeg. One last time, give it a thumbs up, subscribe. I really appreciate that when you do. Let's talk quickly, if we can, about the prelim card. Jan Blahovich defeating Jared Cannonier. 29-28. Cannonier did a good job with his takedown defense in this one. He was taken down a few times, but he was able to get up pretty quickly. You'll note against Glover Teixeira that was a big problem, but the jab of Blahovich, it just seemed like it took Cannonier a while to get into a rhythm, and Blahovich just kept firing the jab in his face, making him reset, reset, reset. He did it over and over and over and over again, and it just really got in his head. Uh, plus, he dropped him, I believe, as well. So it was it was more than just the jab, but the jab was there. He had again, even if you couldn't hold him down, he was threatening with the takedowns. He was just he was just in command. He was always just a little bit ahead in a sort of a staggered way um, over Cannoneer. So Cannoneer is still showing improvement, moving down to Arizona and doing the things he needs to do to get better, but. Um, I still think he'd be better served at middleweight. He still looks a little small to me for a hundred and excuse me for um, two hundred and five pounds. How about Julian Marquez defeating Darren Stewart guillotine choke two forty two of the second round? You know the thing about uh, Julian Marquez is he had that incredible win. First of all, UFC deserves a lot of credit for this one and, and him too, obviously. But it's a good partnership. They bring him. They give him a. They give him a tough test in his UFC debut, but one he was able to answer with an exciting fight and a clear finish. They showed a, a gazillion promos of him on um, Fox Sports 1, all from Tuesday, uh, Dana White's Tuesday Contender Series. And in the end, um, 
he had what he had. So my point being is they promoted Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series over and over again. They promoted Julian Marquez like crazy. He had an exciting fight. He won, and he got a good test. Boy, it doesn't go much better than that. Then he challenges Tyron Woodley to a beard off. You know, your boy ain't doing too shabby over here, but he, he challenges uh, Tyron Woodley to a beard off. Kid's got charisma oozing out of his ears uh, and looks like he wants to get up maybe that London card as well. Uh, incredible, incredible this guy. I mean, Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series is so infinitely better than The Ultimate Fighter. It's just a more adapted, modern version. It's like, hey, what's all the stuff that really sucks about The Ultimate Fighter? Let's get rid of it and just keep all the stuff that rules. Let's put it on on a Tuesday night. You can get in, you can get out. Five fights, two hours, boom. And he had a, he had, he had great wins before this. You know, he beat Matt Hamill, but then he just absolutely like set on fire Phil Hawes. The only thing I would say about Marquez is you watch him compete. It's, he, I made this point, and some of his teammates got a little bit bitter at me, but um, it's not an insult. Like when he, when he starts out, he clearly doesn't move like Floyd Mayweather, and he doesn't have jujitsu like Jacare, and he doesn't wrestle like Daniel Cormier. He's got super well-rounded abilities, but he doesn't, nothing jumps out at you about like how amazing he is from the first word, right? When you just watch him, but over time, what you begin to realize is he's got answers for a lot of different parts of the game. He's incredibly resilient, and he's super resourceful. He picks his spots of offense very nicely. He doesn't rush into a lot of stuff, and he never lets the fight get overwhelmed. Darren Stewart was all up in his grill trying to take him down, trying to turn him over, trying to um, bully him against the fence, and he he absorbs some of that pressure, and he has to fight it off, and he does take a little bit of damage. There's some things he needs to work on. But what you really notice about him is he's resilient and he's resourceful. And he times his big moments expertly, expertly. He's so good at finding a moment when you're at your weakest. And he and he really turns it on at that moment. Whether it's Phil Hawes getting up, not looking, him pushing off, boom, head kick, almost like Rousey and Holm. Or in this particular case, where he had this shot from Stewart that was not great. And he uh, put his body on top, got his hands underneath, knew the guy wasn't going to hand fight, and just drove it until the guy basically – I think he did, in fact. He tapped, but he, he went out as well. That was kind of interesting. So Julian Marquez, keep your eyes on this guy in middleweight. Really, really nice to see um, that kind of developmental you know, uh, talent on their way up to the, the, the roster. And I, I think proof of concept that the Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series ultimately needs to replace the Ultimate Fighter. The Ultimate Fighter's like true value is that it just gives content to Fox Sports 1, but um, it's not nearly as good anymore. Chad LaPree's defeating the greatest name in the world, Galore Bofando. I'm going to call him Bofando because I like saying it better at 410 of the first round. Bofando really giving LaPree's fits on the feet. And look, that style where you're moving a lot and you're looking this way and you're dancing and you're doing all that kind of stuff, that's not I, – I mentioned on Twitter, like, I didn't think it's a like, – if that was the best style, more guys would do it. But that's not to say that's not a style that doesn't work for him. What I meant to say is if you were going to teach somebody to strike, would you teach them that? Mm, I probably wouldn't. I think if he can get away with it, that's fine. I think you have to be a really good athlete to get away with it because a lot of it requires quick athletic movements and a certain amount of balance and comfortability with uncertainty. So I wouldn't teach that at scale to students, but if that guy can do it, then that's great. And you saw tricky, tricky dropping Chad Laprise, but Laprise is a smart fighter, man, taking him down. You saw he had a little bit of trouble with that knee on belly issue, which you should note. Megamed Sharapov against, uh, in his last contest against Shaman Marais, 
didn't. It should tell you how good that guy's Neon Belly is. Neon Belly is, is a very effective weapon, and he couldn't make it work. But what he did do was, again, just taking advantage of this guy's mistakes. As If you're going to bump for a hip drive as a, as a bridge, you can't just bridge and come back down. You've got to bridge and keep bridging. Bridge, bridge. Br you have to bridge like you're on fire. People don't seem to – it's the best lesson I was ever taught. You don't just bridge once, wait a second, bridge another time, wait a second, bridge another it, you, you, Everything is just easily – it's like waiting for a wave. Wave crashes, wait. Wave crashes, wait. Wave crashes, wait. Time it and go. It's not what you got to do. You got to – you have to You have to fight that till that position no longer exists. And, of course, you need the skills and the proper – where you know – wherewithal to do it, but uh, he just bridged once, came back down. So what did Laprise do? Waited until he came back down, slid the knee across, took him out. Um, and then from there, just pounded him out. It was a, it's a very smart win from Chad Laprise. I think he realized, hey, I may have prepped for this guy on the feet, but this ended up being not exactly what I thought it was going to be, so we should probably move on from it. Um, and he did. And he had a great win. Nordin Taleb defeating Danny Roberts at 59 seconds of the first round. My Lord. Um He's a better defender of Barcelona talent than PK. Uh, although PK sucks ass, so that's not saying much. Nordin Taleb, what an unbelievable. I mean, they talked about it from uh, Daniel Cormier's position was that he didn't. It was a. Do you remember um, Frank Shamrock got his arm broken by Kung Lee? I think is the only block with one hand as opposed to the two, right? Um, uh, this was he didn't get his arm broken, but the foot snuck through and hit him hard enough where it mattered in the end. So uh, then he, like, you know, like a cat, like trying not to go into a bathtub. He latches onto the fence, and you could tell he's like not all there. He's trying to like gain composure, and Taleb just absolutely unloads with a right hand on him and drops him. Very, very totally clean stoppage. In fact, I thought the refereeing generally was pretty good tonight. You could quibble with some things, but I thought it was mostly okay. Um, but in any case, um, he did a good job that with that and finished it off. And Taleb is, you know, I'm I, I mean, not much setup to it, but you know. Uh, pretty incredible, pretty incredible win. Um, I'm trying to think here for Taleb. I mean, you know, the guy's a little bit older, but only getting better. It took a long time for him to mature his skills, but he finally has. If you watched his run through Bellator, you would not recognize this guy. He is so dramatically improved, dramatically improved. It's shocking to watch how much better he is now. Um, so you have to really, you know, feel good about that. And you know, I feel bad for Danny Roberts. I, I interviewed him when I was in Vegas, maybe a year ago or so. Very nice guy, but um, that's a clean win. That's a clean win for Nordine Taleb. One thing, though, that the, I, I thought was, I thought that you saw, if you go back and watch in slow motion, I thought Danny was was leaning down because he thought he was going to go to the breadbasket. That's why the hand was low, because he wanted to parry it away. But he had it just high enough where he was able to slightly adjust back, but not enough to really, you know, do one of these, like, you know, Rampage will grab his fingers on the back of his head like this. He kind of just had it here, which is not enough of a blocking mechanism. Um, so I thought he was, I thought he, I thought Taleb went low, got Roberts to lean just a little bit so that it landed enough. And then he followed up on it. So just my own observation, John McDessie running over Abel Trujillo 30, 27 across the board. What do you want to say about this one? McDessie just had his number um, Trujillo or Trujillo, however you want to pronounce it. Either one is correct, by the way. Um, yeah, he was getting he was getting run around in circles on this one. Uh, I'll, I'll cover that one more thoroughly on the Monday Morning Analyst. I thought the ending there was hilarious. Like, show respect. This is martial arts. It's funny. Alessio D. I think it was Kiriko defeating Olawale Bangboshe uh, via KO. 
So, Bang Boshe, I don't know if I want to bring. Uh, you guys ever see the um, old viral sensation Eric Kelly? He's the guy who had the messed up eye. He's the boxing trainer of New York who he teaches out of. Um, God, what's the place in Lower Manhattan where he teaches? Um, Church Street Boxing, and uh, he like brutally insults his clients. There's a video. Look up box. Look up mean boxing trainer Eric Kelly. It's hysterical how he talks to these guys. Uh, he was a good boxer for himself. Got in an incident and uh, on the street and had a pool stick shoved in his eye. I think, and uh, ended his boxing career. So he trains like Wall Street losers um, who, you know, want to pretend they're tough, basically. And uh, he had, he was, tra I, I interviewed him at Mayweather McGregor at the Brooklyn stop. And he was not like, he's not an MMA hater, but he's definitely not an MMA lover. And I think he probably wanted to get Bing Boshe to like really, you know, sort of accept some boxing sensibilities to his game. You know, yes, like what Bing Boshe has done in his losses doesn't make sense either. These, these sprints, these, you know, these wild double kung fu, uh hammer fist those aren't great either but he was just moving so much on the outside he never really got going and chirico or, or kiriko di Carico, whatever he he was it took him a while to get going I, there's not much i can say about this he fired one knee it wasn't blocked he fired another one bang he went down um i just didn't i i think that it was one of those sort of like goldilocks situations with the oatmeal you know he had this old style where he was sprinting and it worked for a while but then it didn't so then he overcorrected my judgment and went to this like outside style that I don't think has worked as well for him. It's somewhere in the middle he's got to find that. Um, you know how good is how good is Alessio Di, Di Carico? I don't know, um, but that was a nice solid win. I can tell you that. Um, you know, and you could add him to um, Marvin Vittori as another Italian middleweight that are doing making some noise with some stoppages in the UFC. And then Jordan Meehan defeating Eric Silva. Eric Silva, 3-26, 3-27, and two of the judges' scorecards. Jordan Meehan just was better everywhere. It's as simple as that. He was better standing. He was better in the clinch. He was better with takedowns. He was better on the ground. He was better in literally every phase of the game. Eric Silva clearly one or two steps behind him. Silva didn't look bad. He didn't get his guard passed until the third round. You know, he was. He, he, it looked to me like Silva was trying to, like, not, you know, sprint and then lose he wants to like preserve himself at which i can appreciate but it's another one of those things where it's like what's the point in lasting a three-round contest if you also lose and you don't really get any of your more like like silva's in this situation where his worst moments and his best moments come from the same approach so how do you tailor that approach to get some more of your best without some of your worst and figuring that out is not so easy and there's one where he's like trying to just last where he's like i'm going to slow down I'm not going to really push the pace. I'm not really going to go too fast. I'm not going to go too hard. I'm just going to kind of try to be in the zone. Okay, you lasted, but you got 30-26, 30-27, What's the point in that? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't quite get that. Um, so, uh, uh, great win for Jordan Meehan. Great win. Re really looked absolutely phenomenal. For the most part, a great win for a uh, great night, I should say, for Canada. Jordan Meehan winning, John McDessie, Nordin Taleb, uh, Chad Laprise. Now, of course, you had uh, Misha Serkinov losing, but uh, overall, pretty good night for Canada as well. I don't have, I think I don't have any um, gate numbers for you. I'll put that on the Monday morning analyst. Um, let's see. Okay. If you have any questions, shoot them to me right now at L Thomas News on Twitter. There's a link if you don't know what my Twitter is in the bio below in the description box below. Shoot me one of those and I'll answer some questions on Twitter. Someone says, I'd rather pay to see Tyron Woodley in a beard fight than pay to see him in a pay-per-view event. Okay, great. Uh-oh, what is this?
Uh, would be a more interesting matchup for T Wood, Covington or RDA? Probably RDA. Probably RDA. Lawler's takedown defense wasn't the same this fight as his front leg was destroyed. Agree. Don't think his takedown defense has got worse since that crazy run many moons ago. Maybe it was bad. It was bad tonight, but you're right. Could just be the leg. But I don't know. He doesn't seem quite as quick with his with his down blocking as he used to be. By the way, John McDessie having great down blocking. By down blocking, I mean someone's trying to shoot into you, getting your hands down and dropping your hips below for the sprawl. It's called down blocking. He had really good down blocking in this fight because he could down block and then turn the corner at the same time. You don't just want to drop your hips straight. You kind of want to drop on one side and then be able to circle at the end of a sprawl. Right? He was really good about that. Really good about that. Um See. Some of y'all hating on Brendan Schaub. I don't know why it's like if people disagree in MMA, all of a sudden you're supposed to be like bitter enemies or something. So I disagree with Brendan Schaub about RDA. I thought that I thought that some of the, the cries that he would do poorly in the USADA era were never fair. And I appear to be right, but I've been wrong about other things. And so what? We don't necessarily agree. Who gives a fuck? People. People don't agree. You can still be reasonable about it. Just be reasonable. Is it possible that MMA gods would give us Perry versus Gaethje at gangster weight? I'd pay for that. That would be fun. That would be really, really, really fun. I would be in favor of that as well. Um, that's a good question. That's a very good question. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? And again, you know, could Gaethje, does Gaethje cut a tremendous amount of weight? I don't know. But some of those, some of those lightweights, man, they might be able to move up. And have a lot more success than we necessarily imagine. I don't think the jump from 155 to 170 is the same as 171 to 185. I really, really, really don't. All right. If you got any more questions, now's the chance. Otherwise, I got to go booze with the woman. Uh, okay. If you have any questions, email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. I greatly appreciate you guys watching. One last time, thank you so much. You guys are the best. I will put this on iTunes, so you can check that out, itunes.com slash promotional malpractice. Again, there's a link below. Um, subscribe to the channel, like the video, and you guys are the best. Thank you so much for watching. I really appreciate it. It is only 1120, so until next time, we'll do this again for UFC 219. Get some sleep.